A very good morning to you. Grab your coffee, grab your donut, come and, come and grab a seat. We'll get cracking. My name's Neil, I'm married to the wonderful Kate. We, uh, together we lead this church, the Southwest London Vineyard. If you're new here or you're visiting, you're very, very welcome. It's lovely to see you. If you were to ask people who never go to church, you know, what's one of the reasons, you know, why is it that you don't go to church? You know, you're at work or it's college or wherever and people that you know don't go to church. You say, why is it that you, you don't go to church? Uh, chances are someone might say, uh, do you know what, I don't go to church because church is really boring. Right? I, I went there once, gave it a try. It's cold, it's dull, it's not interesting. Some bloke gets up, usually some bloke, and, and talks out for hours, it seems, on some very dull subject. So I don't go to church because it's really boring. Other people might say, well, you know, I don't go to church because, you know, what's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with my life? What's it got to do with my work? Anything about, anything to do with life. Why on earth would I go to church? It's it's irrelevant. And then chances are there's going to be at least one person who's going to say, do you know what, the reason I don't go to church is because church is full of hypocrites. It's full of hypocrites. They're, They're all hypocrites. You know, they're, they always talk about all of this stuff, but they never, they never do it themselves. And as far as charges go, if we're being honest, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fair one. In fact, if ever people do say that to me, I, I usually respond uh, with something along the lines of, um, you don't know the half of it. Uh, it's actually much worse than you might imagine. Uh, and then I sort of hope, add a, a hopefully loving and affectionate caveat, which is, um, aren't we all just a little bit hypocritical? Isn't it, isn't it true that all of us, you know, you, whoever I'm talking to, and me included, don't we all um, try, at least sometimes, to give the people around us the impression that we are better than we actually are? Anyone? You know, if we're honest, don't, at least some of the time, some of us uh, pretend to be someone we're not, or, you know, isn't it true that we all wear masks, we all play games, if at least from time to time? And isn't it actually the very reality of our hypocrisy, of that condition, that hypocritical condition that perfectly illustrates the accuracy of the Christian diagnosis of the human condition. That in actual fact, we are all, every single one of us, sinners, just in need of God's grace. And then I might finish off the conversation that I'm having with this person by saying something like, and you know what, the church isn't full of hypocrites. There's always room for at least one more. Um, <laughs> None of us, none of us, you know, none of us, uh, and this is true for whether we're Christians or not, none of us, we're not in the position, we're not in a position to take a morally or spiritually superior stance, you know, some kind of holier-than-thou approach or attitude to the people around us. You know, that's certainly true of us as Christians. You know, as Christians, you know, we, we, sh- we, we, we mustn't, we can't, at least we shouldn't be taking that position because we know that we ourselves are merely recipients of God's kindness and God's goodness and God's grace. 
We are merely a people who can put our hands on our hearts and genuinely and realistically say, um, there by the grace of God go I. We're merely, as, as followers of Jesus, we are merely a bunch of people who've taken a long, hard look in the mirror and despite everything we've seen, warts and all, have, have chosen not to run away from what we see in front of us. We've chosen not to ignore it. We've chosen not to pretend that it, it's not there. We're just a, a group of people who stand and look at ourselves. We stand in front of a, a mirror. And, and as we look, as we look and we see ourselves, we see ourselves with um, all of the, covered in all of this rubbish and covered in all of this gunk, covered in all of this sin, covered in all of this shame. But we're also a people who, as we look into the mirror, we see Jesus come and stand alongside us. We see Jesus come and stand alongside us really, really close by us. And he puts his arm around our shoulder and he looks lovingly into our eyes. And what we see reflected back at us is Jesus standing next to us and he ta- he's taking every single bit of sin, every bit, single bit of shame. He's, he's wiping every bit of dirt and rubbish and grime. And he's taking every single bit of that stuff off us and he's taking it into himself. He's taking it into himself. And, and slowly, as we look back at the reflection, what we see happening is we see ourselves and we see the dirt and the grime and the sin and the shame. We see it all taken away. And, and, and underneath all of that rubbish, our true selves, our true identity is revealed. And as we look into the mirror again, we realize that um, not only have we been cleaned up, but somehow we've started to look remarkably like Jesus in the process. Because I think we're all painfully aware of the rubbish that we're capable, capable of. I think we're painfully aware that evil isn't just something out there. It's actually something in here. It's actually much closer to home. I think it was the Russian writer uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was lying in a prison camp in, uh, in Siberia, and he, he wrote this. He said, It occurs to me that the line regarding good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through the center of every human heart. And he's absolutely right. Evil runs, has the potential to run right through the center of every human heart. And in the text that we are going to come and look at, I promise, um, what we're going to find is, 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 is Paul talking about a bunch of hypocrites who were uh, around at the church at Ephesus. And, and what's interesting about uh, what Paul's writing is, is it's not that he's surprised particularly to find hypocrites in the church. It, it, quite the opposite, actually. It's not that he's surprised to find hypocrites in the church. He, he, he's just really, really honest about it. And and what he does is, first of all, he sort of identifies the fact that there are these hypocrites in the church. But then he does something else, which is he sort of challenges us to believe uh, and to strive for something better. He he, he encourages us not to settle, not to become complacent, not not to give up on um, change and transformation, not to give up on redemption and reformation, but, but to fight as followers of Jesus, as members of the church, to fight 
for real authenticity, to, to fight for um, transparency and honesty and vulnerability in our lives as followers of Jesus. So, if you've got a Bible, um, turn with me. There are some up here at the front. Turn with me to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. The words might come up on the screen. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let's take a look. Now, um, specifically, of course, these words were originally written to Timothy. Uh, and it was written, they were written to Timothy in a particular historical context. Uh, Paul has given the younger Timothy, uh, Paul's in prison, and uh, he's given the younger Timothy the leadership of the church in Ephesus. And so Timothy is there, happily minding his own business, pastoring the church, doing the best job that he possibly can. Paul leaves Ephesus, uh, and then after Paul leaves, um, what happens is these, these teachers with these really weird and wacky, wonderful, heretical, dodgy doctrines come into the church and start causing all kinds of upset. And so uh, Timothy's trying to work out how you handle all of that when you're trying to lead a church and you've got all of these heresies creeping in. Uh, And so Paul writes Timothy a letter and what he's doing is he's offering him his counsel and his experience and his wisdom. He's this older, mature, uh, godly leader and follower of Jesus. And he's basically saying, Timothy, this is how you keep on keeping on um, when you're facing these kinds of sort of adversities, these kind of challenges and, sort of, um, and, and many others besides. So let's have a look at chapter uh, 3, starting in verse 1. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Shocking. Um, Disobedient to their parents. I need some people to read this. Um, Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, hang in there, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. Now, just need to hit the pause button here. Um, gullible women, Paul is finest. Um, gullible, I think what he's referring to here is to the young widows. You go back to 1 Timothy, uh, 1, Timothy um, uh, 1, I think, verse 5. He's talking about young widows. And it, it would seem that what had happened was that there were these young widows in Ephesus and they'd, they were being preyed on by these false teachers. So these guys who were trying to stir up uh, uh, um, uh, dissension in the local church by bringing in their false teaching had preyed upon these young women and had given them all of the wax lyrical on all of this doctrine and stuff. And then these young women had fallen for it these young widows, they'd fallen for it, and then they were in the church in Ephesus, and they were sort of telling everybody about this latest teaching. And it was confusing everybody, and it was causing all kinds of problems. And so that's what he means by gullible women in that context. Um, Who are handed, uh, they're, they're loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Uh, but they will not get very far, because as is the case of these, in the case, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, the first thing we're to remember in, in what are some pretty depressing opening verses, uh, granted, is that Paul's actually talking about the church. He's talking about the church here. This is a a pastoral letter to Timothy, the pastor of a church. 
The intention behind it is to equip him and to in, enable him to do the work of preaching, to raise up other leaders, to, to, to teach healthy doctrine, to combat doctrinal error when it comes into the church. So this is a letter to the church. And after going through what seems and feels like a very long uh, and, and pretty miserable list of vices, Paul ends it all in verse 5 by saying, having the form of godliness but denying its power. Having the form of godliness but denying its power. And what this is really is it's a description of hypocritical religion. Um, having the form of godliness but denying its power. And what Paul's describing here, in essence, is, 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 is a religion or a faith where the focus is all about, it's all on what things look like from the outside. What does the appearance seem to be? It's all about externals. It's all about form. And in essence, what it is, is faith without transformation. What it is, is faith without real change. It's, it's sort of looking good without actually being good having the form of religion, but denying its power. And so Paul's describing somebody who, you know, may, they may do all the right things, they may check all the boxes, they may show up at all the right meetings, they may sing all the right songs in all the right uh, tunes and all the right keys, but actually, inside, they're dying. They're dying, they're stuck, they're struggling. And in essence, because of that, they're denying the actual transformation Transformatory power of the gospel, uh, which is designed to transform us with ever increasing glory into the image of Jesus. Having the form but denying the power. And so what happens is that faith, without that transformation, it just becomes, just becomes religion without repentance. It's words without works. It's doctrine without deeds. It's, it's creed without conduct it's it's form without substance it's hollow it's sham you see because real christianity is not paul saying here it's not about formulas you know it's not um 10 top tips on how to get what i want from god it's not five keys to a happy marriage or three points to an effective prayer life in fact real christianity isn't about religion at all Real Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. Real Christianity is about a friendship with Jesus. And the question for real disciples, for real followers of Jesus, isn't how do I work out how I get what I want and figure out how I make this bit of my life work better for me. The question for authentic followers of Jesus is how how can I grow in my relationship with Jesus? How, how can I fall even more in love with him? How, how can I reorganize things so that I can spend more time in his presence? How can I become more like him? Because the only way that we're going to know what's actually going on with us, it's not because we've read 20 Christian books this week. The only way that we know what's actually going on with us is, am I becoming more like him? Do I look more like him? today than I did yesterday, this week than in last week. The only way we know if we're growing in a genuine relationship with Jesus is by asking ourselves whether we look more like him. At a conference in Amsterdam, uh, Christian apologist uh, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, he was challenged, there were 10,000 itinerant evangelists and preachers at this conference, and he challenged them with these words. He said this, 
why is it that a community that talks so much about supernatural transformation shows so little of that transformation? He goes on, we have to be men and women who embody the message that we are preaching, whose lives are faithful to the claims we are making. And so are we becoming kinder? Are we becoming more compassionate? Are are we becoming more generous? Are we more gracious? Are we less anxious? Are we less materialistic? In short, are we becoming more like him? Paul's talking here about people who profess faith, but they, they, they lack without the power of transformation. They've got a form of godliness, but denying its power. Now, before we get too down on ourselves, is there any, help, is there any hope for us? Um, can hypocrisy be healed? Well, you know, of course it can. With God, nothing's impossible. And so in this journey, we, we've taken the first step. We've taken the first step for anyone in recovery. We've admitted that we're a problem. You know, my name's Neil and I'm a hypocrite, okay? Um, we've acknowledged that we all struggle with some degree of hypocrisy to some extent or another. And, and, and so what we're wanting to do is how do we come to a place, acknowledging that, how do we come to a place whereby we can, we can say, how do I come to a place where I can take off the masks, I can take off the pretense, I can, t- I can take off this external shell which is actually suffocating me. How do I come to a place where I could be real and transparent and authentic? Because um, the truth is, the truth is, most of us, we're all struggling with pretty much the same stuff. You know, the things that we find difficult, they're broadly speaking the same issues. Now, they might have slightly different names. They might have slightly different tags. But effectively, they're all the same thing. And yet we all walk around and go, I don't struggle with that. I, I don't have a problem with that. Oh my gosh, poor you. If only they knew. And the truth is, most of us are just trying to work out what the heck we do with them all. So, to help us. Ouch. Um, if, you want us to, if we want to get healed up, Paul says there are two things. Okay. The first is this, the power of examples. Have a look at 2 Timothy 10, verse 14. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Do you see how verse 10 is to be read in direct contrast to the opening verses of chapter 3. You've got this list in, chapter, in verse 1 and 2, and you've got this list in verses 10 and 11, and they're completely contrasting lists. And, and what Paul's saying here is, Paul's saying is that unlike the hypocrites at the beginning of chapter 3, unlike all of those things, those characteristics, why don't we just try and live life differently? Why don't we try and do this thing called Christian, Christianity differently? And now he's not bragging, he's not boasting. He's simply saying that it's possible to live an authentic, genuinely Christian life. Uh, and one of the ways that I think we discovered that is through the power of example. Back in, back in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says this, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Of whom I am the worst. And he goes on, he says this. But the, he said, for that very reason... I, Paul, was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. Why? As an example 
for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now he's saying, look at where I've come from. Look at how the Lord has brought me safe thus far. Look how far, not because of anything of him, not because of any of his own strength, but because of the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. And what he's saying is, if it helps you, just to keep on keeping on, if it helps you to, 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 to see me and, and see my life as some kind of example as one who's gone before you, then take it. You know, look to my teaching. Look at my way of life. Look at my purpose. Look at my faith. Look at my patience. Look at my love and my endurance. Oh, and by the way, don't forget to look at all my sufferings too, will you? Because that's all part of the package. And what he's saying is, you, you know everything there is to know about me. And if any of it's any use, use it. Have it. And there are people here in this room that we can learn how to do this thing called the Christian life from. Not an empty religious life, but an authentic Christian life. We just need to get near them. We just need to get alongside them and, 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 and catch it off them like the flu. And that's one of the reasons we do small groups. Small groups are about that. They're about the power of one life interacting with another life and seeing that example. Because the most powerful learning device, as you are well aware, it's, it's certainly not a message or a book. It's, it's, it's flesh and blood example. We need something tangible. We need something we can see. We need to see it in action we can, so we can go, ah, oh, oh, look at that. So that's, that's how you handle grief. And, and, and keep your faith. I, 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 wow, that's, how, that's incredible. Or, wow, that's how you survive teenage children. And don't commit murder or give up on your faith. And believe that there is no God. There can possibly, nobody can possibly be a God. This is how you deal. That, that's what it looks like to deal with a terminal illness and retain your faith. That's how you pray for your, the sick. That's how you share your faith. Whatever, no, 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 it goes on and on. There's something incredibly powerful about models because modeling goes well be, way beyond just simply showing somebody how to do something. Modeling, deep buried within it, um, it, it, it sort of ignites and inspires hope because when we see the real deal, we have hope that it is actually possible. It's actually doable. That This stuff can be done. It is actually possible to survive the death of a spouse. It is possible to survive the loss of a child and remain faithful to God. It is possible to be told that you have six months to live and still be head over heels in love with Jesus. We've seen it. We've seen it modeled to us. It's glorious. It's inspirational. It gives me hope. You can actually not have sex before marriage and not die. Who'd have thought it? There are people in the room. Oh, they're still living. It is possible to live differently. It is possible to live according to this book. Huh. Models do that for us. Maybe we meet someone who's got a life-controlling habit and that we're struggling with it ourselves, but we don't tell anybody about it. And that person not only has the courage to tell us about it, they also become the embodiment of how to get over it and to get through it. They're the living proof of the power of God to transform and change lives. So we don't have to live our lives addicted to pornography. 
We don't have to carry on living lives as alcoholics. We don't have to struggle endlessly with our self-image. We don't have to live under the curse of sexual abuse forever. And there are flesh and blood people in this church, in this room now, who have overcome all of those things and some by the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We can change. We can be changed. We can be transformed with ever-increasing glory into the image of Jesus. Because at the cross, he has taken all of our sin and shame. Because at the cross, he took all of that rubbish upon himself so that we could be cleaned up from it all. And so instead of wearing filthy rags, we sang it this morning, instead of singing, wearing filthy rags, instead of standing in front of the mirror naked and ashamed, what happens is we delight greatly in the Lord. Our soul rejoices in God our King, for he has clothed us in garments of salvation. He's arrayed us in a robe of righteousness. We're clothed in robes of righteousness. And, and it's an extraordinarily powerful thing to meet somebody who tells you um, by their own lives that the things that are in this book are actually true. And there are possibilities for you too. You don't have to be dressed in those filthy rags anymore. You don't have to be naked and ashamed anymore. The Lord wants to clothe you in garments of salvation. He wants to array you in a robe of righteousness, his righteousness. He wants to envelop you and enwrap you. Wrap you up in that. We just need examples. We need examples for ourselves. And just as a side note, um, we need to be examples for others. We need to be examples for others. And in order for us to be examples, in order for us to be good models, it's going to take courage on our part. Because sometimes the, the trouble is, is we forget very quickly what our struggles were. Once we've got through them, once we've got over them, by the grace of God, he's brought us safely. And we go, yeah, I never, I've never had that issue. Do you see? Good luck. And actually what it's going to take is it's going to take some of us to be courageous. It's going to take some of us to be brave, for us to be transparent, for us to make ourselves vulnerable and say, do you know what? And here's what I'm struggling with, or here's what I have struggled with. Um, But by the grace of God, I'm coming out of the other side, or by the grace of God, I've come out of the other side. And then as we share that with people and they go, "Ah, help, will you help drag me through? You go, yeah, 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 absolutely I can help drag you through. And here, I have faith for this because I've seen what God can do. And then what we do to them when their knees are trembling and their hands are shaking, we steady the trembling knees and we say, here, have some of my faith. Here's some of my faith for you and your journey. Let me pray for you. Let me minister to you. Let me serve you. Let me help you out of the hole that you're in. But as for you... Continuing what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those um, from whom you've learned it. When we're talking about healing our hypocrisies, not only do we have the power of example, we've also got the power of scripture. Have a look at verses um, 14 to 17. But as for you, continuing what you've learned and become uh, convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why are the scriptures so powerful? Well, uh, the first is because of the source of the scriptures. The source of the scriptures. Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed. 
All scripture, everything within these pages, it's God-breathed. And if we're wanting to get healed up from our hypocrisy, if we're wanting to deal with our stuff, um, we need to not only look to great Christian examples, but we need to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. We need to be looking into the scriptures. Literally what Paul is saying here is that the scripture is breathed into by God and breathed out by God. The, 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 the scriptures are the inspired and the expired word of God. It's the breath of the living God. The scriptures results, they result from his breath. And because they result from his breath, they too have life in them. They are living and active. Psalm uh, 33 says this, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. And scripture is one of the outworkings, the creative outworkings of the breath of the living God. What's the source of the scripture? God is the source of the scripture. And that's why we read it. That's why we study it. That's why we meditate on it day and night. That's why we preach from it week in, week out, unashamedly, unapologetically. Because God is its source. You can feel, you can feel the warmth of his breath in every single page. It's like your father reading to you a bedtime story. You can smell his presence. You can feel his presence on every single word. Why do we read the Bible? Because of its source. It's been breathed by God Almighty. Now, just in case you weren't aware, that doesn't mean to say that the Bible um, was sent by God to someone via the olden days version of Google Docs. You know, nor did the scriptures come down from heaven, leather clad with gold leaf edging on the pages. That's not how it came about. In the same way that God works with us and through us now, so too God has worked with his people as he breathed out his message. And, and each of those people that he's, he's, he's worked with, they each have their own temperaments. They each have their own personalities. They each have their own writing styles. So that the message of the Bible, it, it, it sounds different in tone and style depending on, on the messenger. It's, 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 it's like an orchestra. It's like an orchestra. You, you know, um, the, in an orchestra, the strings sound very different to the brass section. The, 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 um, the, the woodwind sounds very different to timpani. And, and yet, somehow, they all come together in this incredible symphony. To make this most beautiful sound, this incredible whole. And so God breathed his message into the Apostle Paul. And, and Paul is very logical. Uh, Paul is very learned. And Paul's also pretty direct, in case you hadn't noticed. And, and actually, uh, I don't quite know how to say this, um, Paul doesn't sound very familiar to our 21st century ears. It's a little bit like you um, suddenly hear some Elizabethan duck-strangling instruments from the past. Do you remember the, the, you know, the Elizabethan music, you know, the instruments? You know, they kind of sound like some poor animal, mostly is being sort of strangled. You see, and you go, oh my goodness, that sounds dreadful. And sometimes you read Paul and go, oh my gosh, that sounds dreadful. Well, not to the Elizabethans, it didn't. You see, it doesn't sound marvelous. And so 
we have to just bear that in mind. Paul's message sounds different. Um, it sounds different to the message that came through David. You see, David is all lyrical strings. We love David, right? Paul, Paul's definitely the brass section, okay? It's there. It's full on, okay? But the source of it all, regardless, I need to hurry, is, is the Lord. Uh, the purpose of the scripture, have a look at verse 15. How from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you whole but wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, the purpose of all Scripture is to lead us to salvation in Christ Jesus. It's Martin Luther who said, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. And so it's to the Scriptures that we go to find Jesus. It's to the whole council of Scripture that we go to find Jesus, to find the wonderful person of Jesus. Because it's the, it's the whole Bible, both Old Testament and new that is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. And we must never lose sight of the fact that there are two testaments to the whole council of Scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Both old and new. They cannot be separated. They are interwoven. One cannot be understood without the other. Each testament is like a, it's like a lexicon, a glossary, a commentary to the other. It's been well said. The new is the gospel unfolded. The old is the gospel enfolded. The new is the gospel unveiled. The old is the gospel veiled. The new is in the old contained. The old, uh, the new is in the old revealed, uh, concealed. I should never put this up. Then you'd never have known. I could have said whatever I liked. It's like having a cheat sheet behind you. Go wrong. Wrong. You tell me then, smarties. The new. I'm trying to do all of this stuff, trying to remember which one's the new and which one's the old. The new, thank you. The new, the new is in the old concealed. The old is by the new revealed. Is that what it says? Praise the Lord. The new is in the old contained. The old is by the new explained. The old is in the new confined. The new is the gospel defined. The old is the gospel enclosed, the new is the gospel disclosed. No matter how challenging we find parts of it, and trust me, uh, if you don't already know, parts of it are incredibly challenging. Yeah, if we're, like, we're a bit like archaeologists, you know, on a dig at an ancient site, if we just brush away a little of the debris and soil, you'll find the hidden treasure of Jesus all over that Old Testament of yours. You'll stumble over types of Christ in the characters of the Old Testament. You'll discover types of him at the sacrifices. You'll encounter him and his presence at Passover. You'll see his fingerprints all over the, the festivals. You'll be walking through the pages of the Old Testament and you will literally walk straight into a signpost, like a lamppost, a signpost, a prophecy that's pointing to the coming of Jesus. You'll read about his life and his death and his resurrection. You will discover more of his nature. You will find out more of his person and his passion and his purpose. Because this book is all about Jesus. All of it. It's all about learning more about Jesus because we meet Jesus on the pages of Scripture. And because we discover Jesus on the pages of this book, as we begin to study the whole counsel of Scripture, we begin to understand more of, of Jesus' heart. We begin to understand more of Jesus, who Jesus is. We begin to understand more of what Jesus has done for us. 
I don't want to jump on to next week, um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're finishing it off. Uh, but let's not become a people who, because we wouldn't put up with sound doctrine, surround ourselves with teachers who just say what our itching ears want to hear. Let's not be those people. Theologian Simon Ponsby writes, the scriptures are our source and norm for all doctrine and details of life with God. The scriptures are our source and norm for all doctrine and details of life with God. Have a look at uh, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I need to hurry. Here's more of Paul's outlining the purpose of scripture. And, and these first two words, teaching and rebuking, they're about how the scriptures properly handled lead us into truth. It's about truth. Uh, and firstly, the scripture is useful for teaching us. It's useful for showing us um, correct doctrine. And then secondly, the scriptures are useful for reproving us, rebuking us, uh, and for pointing out errors in our doctrine. And and so these first two words are relating to truth and to doctrine. And then the second two words uh, are relating to our practice. Our practice as Christians. Training. So that we can take the theory of our doctrine and put it into practice. Aha! That's what, the, that's what the doctrine is. That's what it means. Oh, this is what it looks like in real life. Training. And then correcting, which helps us straighten out our practice when we start to go slightly off course. And then lastly, very quickly, have a look at the final verse of verse 17. The source of the scripture, the power of the, 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 power, the source of the scripture, the purpose of the scripture, and the necessity of scripture. So that, why? Why scripture? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need this book, short and simple. Um, We need to know this book. We need to know this book cover to cover, not just the bits that we like, not just the bits that we readily agree with, but we need to be grappling with the whole counsel of Scripture because in the words of this book are the words of life. The scriptures lead us to Jesus. These scriptures rid us of our false notions about God. These scriptures train us regarding how we can practically follow God. The words on the pages of this book literally purge our hearts and minds of all kinds of random thoughts about all manner of things. And in addition to all of that, by learning to handle the scriptures correctly, by learning to handle the scriptures correctly, these scriptures provide us with the, the truth and the guide for how it is that we're to live. And so if we want to find the mind of Christ for uh, reconciling our relationships or handling our money or how to behave in business or how to relate to the government or how to uh, develop a, a, a strong sense of self-identity or, or, or so many things, all of those things and more, it's all in, it's all in here. It's all in here. But we need to take it seriously. We can't just dip in and dip out. We can't just pick and mix. You see, that's what leads to error. That's what's led to so many of the truly horrific things that have been done in the name of the Father over the years. Because people have not handled the Scriptures correctly. But if we're serious as growing as a Christian, we need to be digging in to the counsel, the whole counsel 
of Scripture. We need to be devoting ourselves to the reading of the Word. Because at some point, we're going to have to build a private history with God. A private one-on-one history. Uh, coming on a Sunday is great. Listening to me is awesome, right? I mean, so privileged. I, um, it's surprising. I'm going to surprise you. It's not enough. Far, 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 far from it. Far from it. key part of it involves regularly feeding ourselves, ourselves, from the Word of God. If we really want to deal with our stuff, if we're serious about following Him, if we really want to become less and less hypocritical, if we want to be more and more genuine, giving ourselves to the devotion of the Word, the Word is absolutely crucial. This last week we celebrated the 90th birthday of Her Majesty the Queen, the longest serving monarch uh, to rule these islands. And on the occasion of her coronation in June 1953, immediately after she had sworn her oath, um, she was presented with a Bible. She was presented with a Bible, uh, uh, and the then Archbishop of Canterbury said these words. Our gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Why don't you stand?